It's in the book. Young adult book. Illustrated book. Juvenile book. Oh, it's seeking too much time. It's time to listen. Time to unwind. It's seeking too much time with all your hosts. That's Larry, Keith, and Bree. Don't forget, Peter. Patrick Tom Knights, welcome, welcome, welcome ye thrice to another rip-roaring episode of Seeking Tumness. Those of you that were wondering if you'd come to the right place because of our special theme song, let me reassure you that my name is Laurie, and I'm joined by the jubilant Bree, Efharisto, the convivial Keith Rowe, eh, hello, and in spirit by the wayward Patrick Moon. Our guest theme song was written and recorded on the first take by a friend and fan of the show who decided he simply could not go on without making a children's television show style intro for Seeking Tumnus. Well, twiddle my Tim Tams, tastefully, (laughs) if it wasn't the Kit's brisket. Thank you, Leo McBride from the Central Coast of New South Wales. I love the hell out of that and I've been singing snippets of it all week, you cheeky mind-paralysing Pied Piper. For those of you that miss Patrick's crooning, fear not, it shall return next episode and in part at the end of this one. Join us now, though, on the sunny olive grove carpeted slopes of Corfu in a no doubt exaggerated but delightfully whimsical autobiographical account of the author's childhood in the wonderful Aren't You Glad I Picked It? Oh God, you best have liked it or we might not be friends in 40 minutes. No pressure, just saying it's simply an irrefutable classic and you'd be a lack-witted illiterate to disagree, <clears throat> My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. But first, a warning. Warning, this episode of Seeking Tumnus will contain spoilers, but you can rest easy knowing that this is the kind of book that cannot so easily be spoiled by plot revelations. If you haven't yet read My Family and Other Animals, consider doing so. It will make this episode more relevant, and I'd hazard a guess that you will learn a few things along the way. This podcast may also contain historical inaccuracies, ill-thought-out dalliances with nature, incomplete sentences, and a really, really, really amazing... Now, in light of our temporarily reconfigured crew, I'm pleased to introduce this week's page one orator. Me! Yay! Hooray! July had been blown out like a candle by a biting wind that ushered in a leaden August sky. A sharp, stinging drizzle fell billowing into opaque grey sheets when the wind caught it. Along the Bournemouth seafront, the beach huts turned blank wooden faces towards a greeny-grey, froth-chained sea that leapt eagerly at the cement bulwark of the shore. The gulls had been tumbled inland over the town, and they now drifted above the housetops on taut wings, whining peevishly. It was the sort of weather calculated to try anyone's endurance. Considered as a group, my family was not a very prepossessing sight that afternoon for the weather had brought with it the usual selection of ills to which we were prone. For me, lying on the floor, labelling my collection of shells, it had brought catar, pouring it into my skull like cement, so that I was forced to breathe stertorously through open mouth. For my brother Leslie, hunched dark and glowering by the fire, it had inflamed the convolutions of his ears, so that they bled delicately but persistently, To my sister Margot, it had delivered a fresh dappling of acne spots to a face that was already blotched like a red veil. For my mother, there was a rich bubbling cold and a twinge of rheumatism to season it. Only my eldest brother Larry was untouched, but it was sufficient that he was irritated by our failings. It was Larry, of course, who started it. The rest of us felt too apathetic to think of anything except our own ills. But Larry was designed by Providence to go through life like a small blonde firework, exploding ideas in other people's minds, and then curling up with cat-like unctuousness and refusing to take any blame for the consequences. He had become increasingly irritable as the afternoon wore on, at length glancing moodily around the room. He decided to attack Mother as being the obvious cause of the trouble. 
Why do we stand this bloody climate? He asked suddenly, making a gesture towards the rain-distorted window. Look at it. And if it comes to that, look at us. Margot swollen up like a plate of scarlet porridge. Leslie wandering around with 14 fathoms of cotton wool in each ear. Jerry sounds as though he's had a cleft palate from birth. And look at you. <laughs> You're looking more decrepit and hang-ridden every day. Mother peered over the top of a large volume entitled Easy Recipes from Rajputana. Indeed I'm not, she said indignantly. You are, Larry insisted. You're beginning to look like an Irish washerwoman, and your family looks like a series of illustrations from a medical encyclopedia. <laughs> Mother could think of no really crushing reply to this, so she contented herself with a glare before retreating once more behind her book. What we need is sunshine, Larry continued. Don't you agree, Le Les? 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 Leslie unravelled a large quantity of cotton wool from one ear. What you say? he asked. There you are, said Larry, turning triumphantly to Mother. It's become a major operation to hold a conversation with him. I asked you, what a position to be in. One brother can't hear what you say, and the other one can't be understood. Really, it's time something was done. I can't be expected to produce deathless prose in an atmosphere of gloom and eucalyptus. Yes, dear, said Mother vaguely. What we all need, said Larry, getting into his stride again, is sunshine, a country where we can grow. Yes, dear, that would be nice, agreed Mother, not really listening. I had a letter from George this morning. He says Corfu's wonderful. Why don't we pack up and go to Greece? Very well, dear, if you like, said Mother unguardedly. Where Larry was concerned, she was generally very careful not to commit herself. When, asked Larry, rather surprised at this cooperation. Mother, perceiving that she had made a tactical error, cautiously lowered easy recipes from Rajputana. Well, I think it would be a sensible idea if you were to go on ahead, dear, and arrange things. Then you can write and tell me if it's nice, and we all can follow, she said cleverly. Larry gave her a withering look. You said that when I suggested going to Spain, he reminded her. And I sat for two interminable months in Seville, waiting for you to come out, while you did nothing except write me massive letters about trains and drinking water, as though I was a town clerk or something. No, if we're going to Greece, let's all go together. You do exaggerate, Larry, said Mother plaintively. Anyway, I can't just go like that. I have to arrange something about this house. Arrange? Arrange what, for heaven's sake? Sell it. I can't do that, dear, said Mother, shocked. Why not? But I've only just bought it. Sell it while it's still untarnished, then. Don't be ridiculous, dear, said Mother firmly. That's quite out of the question. It would be madness. So we sold the house and fled from the gloom of the English summer, like a flock of migrating swallows. Yuppie! Off to Greece we go! Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> that was like page one through ten. That that was a lot of pages, but quite entertaining. Thank you, Keith. Filled in admirably. <laughs> you, I think you did exceptionally well, Keith, because even on the true pages one and two or one point five of this, I have one, two, three times had to look up words from Wikipedia to actually <laughs> understand. So I learned a lot from this book. So the first one I had to look up was Qatar. And my notes say excessive buildup of mucus. So Jerry is suffering from an excessive buildup of mucus. Nah, I'm, I'm well familiar with that one. Mm. <laughs> the next one was stertorously or stertorously, which means, you ready? Noisy and laboured. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was a good fit, that one. I looked that up and having not heard of it also and yeah, thought, oh, I'll remember that. And then when I went to read it back then, completely gone. And actually, I... I misstated it. I didn't look up a third word until after you finished, which is the word diaphanous. And I was hoping that you would read that one so I could actually know whether it's pronounced diaphanous <laughs> or some other way. It would be a mistake to take my pronunciation as, as uh, law. <laughs> <laughs> Page one. I love it. I can. I feel like I'm in Bournemouth. And look, I've visited England in the middle of <laughs> winter before and I can imagine that the the breezes coming off the sea there would just be icy cold. I sympathise with the family and their plight. This is, I think it's in the 30s, so possibly extra cold, possibly sitting by the fire, burning coal. They don't have the modern creature comforts to keep them warm. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And perhaps Greece is this faraway land that they're dreaming of going to, and I can't wait to read more. How about you, Laurie? 
I loved it. Yes, it's a little bit wordy, but I think that actually adds to the experience for me. I learned three words. <laughs> actually, I think I knew what diaphanous meant, but the others were, yes, in education. But no, you're right. The idea of getting not quite whisked away, they take themselves off to this new country on a whim that's very exciting and and that humor that british humor where they say that would be madness dear <laughs> and then the next line is off we went it's it's great i think it sets itself up very well for a telly movie yeah, oh, <laughs> spoiler no. No. oh no <laughs> but it sets larry up to be this sort of overbearing chump and gives them a reason for going and it's it's all very sort of eccentric and i i loved it yes keith yeah, I um, was really looking forward to this book. So this kind of was what I was expecting in a way, but it was a little bit longer, a little bit more detailed than I was expecting. I know this is talking in focus on page one, but the verbosity of the language was immediately apparent reading the book. I did love the way they set up the family relationship straight away, like you just said there, that English sort of humour there was excellent. And yeah, having read that, I wanted to read more. It's amazing just to... I guess sidestep for a moment. It's amazing that it is that verbose that his um, his language is is that good because the entire book he seems to dedicate to avoiding education. <laughs> <laughs> like he does everything he can to get out of a classroom and out into the uh, the olive groves, etc. But nature's classroom, like um, Laurie. I almost called you Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at some quotes in preparation for this episode, and when he was 10 years old, he wrote this, there was just one line quoted about being a uh, like a lost white man in the middle of an African jungle or something, and the spelling is like so atrocious. I figure he must have had some help writing this book, or his, his education got better. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I think he wrote this when he was around 30 years of age, so, you know, it was 20 years had, had passed since the beginning of this book. Someone strapped him eventually into a desk chair and taught him. <laughs> Possibly he had some help from his brother being a writer. So, yeah, it was right. definitely, um, yeah, like you say, he references his own spelling inadequacies in the opening chapters. And that doesn't ring true for the author of this book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, Bree, the synopsis of the book. Can you expand on that page one? What happens next? I can. I've sort of done a bit of a different synopsis. In that, because it's a memoir or a, I guess it's autobiographical, I've just sort of looked at some of the main characters to see, just to give us a flavour for what sort of happens. So in the 1930s, a preteen, and I think we learn that he's about 10, Jerry Durrell, relocates with his family from Bournemouth in England, as we've heard, where the weather is calculated to try anyone's endurance, to the warm climes of the island of Corfu. So this book is recollected and reconstituted for publishing in the post-war 50s, and it's so it's Jerry's collection of memories from, I guess, from his boyhood perspective. So we see his oldest brother, Larry, who arrives in Greece with a briefcase of clothes and two trunks of books. And this Larry is the theorist and the dreamer mixing with the literati of the epoch. Totally incapable of any practical application of his ideas, though, he would prefer to die in a fire than throw water on a smouldering wooden beam in his bedroom. Leslie is the other brother who seems to be happiest toting a gun and regaling anyone who will listen with tales of his shooting prowess. Poor Margot, who appears to Jerry as his vapid, somewhat narcissistic sister, whose face is, and this has got to be one of my favourite descriptions, swollen up like a plate of scarlet porridge. (laughs) (laughs) Poor girl. Poor girl, in the throes of adolescence, and this is what she's copying for time immemorial. Yeah. So she spends her time experiencing the highs and lows of first love, dramatically rowing off to an island at the height of her first breakup. Then there is mother, who appears ever patient, accommodating of the very broad range of interests of her offspring, and yet somewhat unable to rein them in and impose structure. Though she does manage to get young Jerry to attend some of his lessons with his various tutors on a regular basis. And Jerry himself. Fascinated by the world around him, his menagerie grows over his time in Corfu and he keeps insects in test tubes, water snakes in the bath, a terrapin in a tub and a lecco, the biting seabird, in his room. He roams the island, observing all he can in between lessons and ingratiates himself with the peasants. What did you think of it, Laurie? I really, really enjoyed the book. I grew up on a farm and so had a lot of wildlife around me. And I wasn't really the outdoors 
type of boy. But simply by virtue of living on the farm, I was exposed to a lot of animals and I quite like the ability to have a dog and cats and there's cows roaming around and there's snakes and giant goannas occasional echidna all that kind of thing kangaroos quite often were sitting in a room reading or playing video games but when I wasn't there was a lot of wildlife around me and I really enjoyed that so this book kind of called to me on that level but on the other level like it was just so funny that I kind of get the impression that yeah the characters are more like caricatures that they're exaggerated slightly and maybe maybe this all really did happen they were just a wacky British family quite happy to have a go at each other a lot of the time and had a lot of misadventures. I think it's not just that. I think it's also just because he's 10 and between what, 10 and 14 or 15, roughly when he's remembering this, I think it's partly just the perspective of a child as well. He doesn't see all of the ins and outs. So he's, it's to me, it's almost more like his recollection of how things went. Right. Not necessarily backed up. It could also be that only the really crazy things stood out in his memory when he's writing it down much later on. So. Or the crazy things were made bigger and bolder because of being left on his own and having an imagination. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's just so many examples in the book of, of that wacky humour. And that first chapter or that first page or two is a good example of that. Just the, It would be mad to go off and do this and then the next thing they're doing something insane. There's just so many examples in the book of... Of the, of the wacky family interactions happening. It was, it was laugh-out-loud stuff. I, I was giggling on the train, and I actually remember when I first read this book, it was a recommendation by my English high school teacher, and I think she regretted at one stage advising me to read this book because we were reading in, you know, the beginning of the English class would have that quiet reading time, and <laughs> I would laugh uproariously loud <laughs> In, in the class and disturb everyone else because the book was just so good. And rereading it again now, I, I, I couldn't help but laugh again. It was, it was just so funny and uh, the, the idiosyncrasies of the, the family members really sold it to me. Yes, I was interested in the natural stuff as well, but I think it's more, more the family and the humour that really, really got into my bones. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I loved it. I echo your laughing uproariously. However, I tended to read this one on the train going to and from work. So I did find that I got a couple of funny looks when I was giggling or at least trying to hold my tittering in a little bit to myself as is done on the train. Titters are definitely better held in on trains, I would agree. And look, what I loved about it as well is that I've never actually read a memoir with such a memoir with such, I guess, powerful imagery. And I could really hear those, you know, shrill, triumphant cries of the cicadas. And I wanted to go back to those white beaches, which are surrounded by the gold and red and white rocks. I really wanted to sort of see it and eat olives and calamari fished from and cockles fished straight from the sea and drink that dreadful wine that I remember when I was there, which tastes and smells like pine needles. But at the same time, I'm not sure that any experience I would have in Greece would have the same depth of experience and amazingness as Jarell's prose. Like, I wonder whether he's captured it so beautifully that any experience would never actually match up. I think you're only limited by your imagination, which is the case here as well, I think, with the, the embellishments, which Laurie has touched on in the opening. Mm. Not to downplay it, but... I wonder, Bree, whether anyone can visit the Corfu that he lived in. Like whether that time has moved on, maybe it's a bit more developed or a bit more spoiled or there's a bit less wildlife. Like I've never been, but I felt absolutely drawn like you were to go because it sounds so amazing and and, and really descriptive language, like you said, that painted a really gorgeous picture. And I wonder if that, that Corfu still exists. Well, I don't know, possibly in certain ways. Like I was there gosh, 10 years ago, not in Corfu. I was in a tiny island called Kufenissia, which is off Naxos. And, you know, there's one of these places where there's about one ferry a week to get on and one ferry a week to get off the island. And on the way Mm. over there, there were people sitting with cages of animals, (laughs) chickens and goats and things between their legs. And they still had donkeys who were used on the island to go from farm to farm. You get off the ferry and you can go and stay in someone's house instead of staying in a hotel because there's not very many hotels on this island and when you eat you walk past somebody's house and they say hey would you like to have a meal of whatever they've got gone out and caught that day so I think there are probably elements of that particularly on some of those smaller islands and it might just be the Greek hospitality and the Greek way of life because gosh it was 
amazing and beautiful and incredibly friendly, welcoming people. I should go back. There you go. I'll go back. (laughs) Yeah, when I was reading, I like to sort of think of it as if it was set now because there wasn't a lot that really locked it in to a particular time. Mm. And I liked that there was no technology or anything like that involved because it allowed you to do that, to just separate yourself from it and, and not think of it as a historical sort of thing. Think of it as a yourself in the, in this sort of environment, enjoying enjoying nature in the same way that, that Gerald did. Mm. Well, I think there's probably definitely elements of it, so that was good. What about you, Keith? Okay, so having just heard you two sing the praises of this book... <laughs> <gasps> All right, so I was really, really looking forward to reading this, and it wasn't only because this is a departure from the fantasy that I've been reading so much of lately, but it was also... (laughs) (laughs) Take that! (laughs) But this is kind of contradictory, but also because I've really, over the years, come to trust Laurie's taste. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) It conjured up some memories of reading He Died with a Falafel in His Hands and the Tasmanian Babes fiasco in my uni-going days, which they're obviously aimed at a different sort of audience, but I was really hoping that that's what this book would be, this sort of episodic, comedic um, recounts of of his youth on this island. And in some ways, that's what it was, but it was so much more as well. So I definitely can see the appeal of this book to children, whether you're an impulsive and explorative child or if you're just living precariously through Gerald. You have this hero character who never loses his sense of adventure throughout the book. It's even more poignant when you come to appreciate that this continued into his adult years and quite probably right through to his death. He was you know, the proprietor of a, a famous zoo in, in New Jersey, a famous naturalist, writer, television personality, I believe, etc. So here's where I get a bit different to you guys. I felt a little bit bombarded with unnecessary details to frame the stories. Mm. Everything was so verbose that it was a bit draining at times you'd have to really concentrate because a lot of it was kind of unnecessary to the story i know he was setting up each story in a sort of chapter by chapter episodic way but there just seemed like too much backstory sometimes or too many words in in recounting the backstory like at one point you know the family are reading their mail which is which is really just to give reason for them moving from one villa to another. It was a threat of this great aunt visiting because they had such a spacious villa that they could accommodate guests. It really just was too much detail. It could have been covered so so much more succinctly, and I would have enjoyed it a lot more if that was the case. As an isolated anecdote, these things all would have stood up on their own incredibly well, and you could have read them all as isolated anecdotes, and they would have been perfect. But when you combine them all in a, in a book that's full of them, it just becomes too much minutia. Anyone else feeling anything like that? I see where you're coming from on that. I felt it did take me a really long time to read this and life gets in the way sometimes. We went through, I think, three or four tutors. So, you know, some of the secondary characters and I feel that perhaps you could have, I believe this is now part of a trilogy, this book. So I, I do wonder what happens in books two and three because mm. you could hold off and do some of those anecdotes in a in another story or I understand where you're coming from. I had forgotten about that letter writing part. I didn't find that bit quite so frustrating. I thought that was kind of a nice link back to home and they're not that far off leaving again anyway and going back to England and Yeah, no, no, I do agree with that. Like it was wasn't that it wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back or anything yep. like that. It was really just that, that was an example that by that point in the book that's where my mind was a little bit. So I yeah, just noted okay. that one. Like I said Individually, they all held up so well and they were like tightly wrapped little bundles of fun. And fun, amusement. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But together, it was just a little bit grating. Mm. And like you, I did read it in spits and spats, which I'm sure did not help in in that, that feeling that I got. So I won't harp on too much. I didn't expect it to be so long. I look at it almost in a comparison to Roald Dahl, who wrote his own memoirs in Boy and then Going Solo. So I I guess in the back of my mind thought it would probably be about the length of Boy, but it was probably twice as long. Yeah. Mm, or or more. more even, yeah. And look, Dahl is prone to this, a similar type of exaggeration, I think, in Boy mm. as Darrell was in this. And that sort of leads me to that earlier comment about it's just the view from childhood looks slightly different to what we have from, from an adult view perhaps. But yeah, I, I sort of thought that that Dahl boy-esque length was really great and I just expected this one to be same. 
Yeah, I, I don't think Dahl would have been focusing on the the minute detail that Darrell was. For example, like he meets this strange man and you get a recount of all of his facial features and what he's wearing and everything in this intense detail. And it's something that he's recounted from 10, 15, almost 20 years down the track. Obviously, he's embellished a lot and it's part of painting you into that world, but it was too much mm. in, some of those, in some of those cases. So I'll, I'll continue. And this is probably going to be met with some scorn, particularly from Laurie, but I'll say, yeah, okay, it's hard to be critical of the plot or the lack of an overarching storyline in an autobiography, but I have to be honest when I give my assessment of my enjoyment of this book, and it didn't meet my expectations in the way the story progressed. Probably the verbosity that began to grate on me a little as I went through had me tired in in my readings, and I did mention to you guys on several occasions that this would put me to sleep quite often, and that's... (laughs) That's more a statement about when I was choosing to read it than the content of the book, but the content of the book didn't help me. What was I saying? You were saying that you had trouble with the big words. Yeah. <laughs> it really wasn't the case of that because I love, I'll say that I love the language in this. It was really, really well written. Yeah, and, and it made me laugh all the way through. Yeah, there was funny parts, definitely. I didn't laugh out loud at all, I don't think, but I definitely had a few chuckles inside. So I'll say, if we go in an autobiographical direction again, please, can we do it with Roald Dahl's boy or Brie, for you, going solo? <laughs> <laughs> I like boy a lot. I liked it a lot too, but I'm sure it's not top of the list in terms of revisiting Dahl. No, definitely not. No, there's others. The BFG, I have to prove you all wrong. And if anybody hasn't listened, go back to episode one. (laughs) (laughs) Or every other episode where we continually reference it. (laughs) Can I just defend, I feel like there's one thing that you've said, like I think most of it's pretty fair, but I need to defend that one chapter. I thought that chapter about, it's called conversation, about the, the aunt coming, so... I thought that was one of the best parts of the book. It was hilarious. And I'm going to read a part of it. So what (laughs) happens is that they're sitting down, they're they're opening up letters, and this aunt says she wants to come and stay. And Larry, who's, you know, this sort of bully, and he's the one that's always not causing trouble, but always bullying mother to do one crazy thing or another. floating the ideas that, you know, get into your mind and cause you to react and take action. But never taking that action himself, as Bree sort of said. So he's absolutely appalled that his mother has mentioned the fact that they've got all this room because the aunt's sort of now imposed upon them and says that she wants to come and stay. Anyway, he's carrying on for a bit and he says this. Why keep in touch with them? That's what I want to know, asked Larry despairingly. What satisfaction does it give you? They're they're either all fossilised or mental. (laughs) Indeed, they are not mental, said mother indignantly. Nonsense, mother. Look at Aunt Bertha keeping flocks of imaginary cats. And there's great-uncle Patrick, who wanders around nude and tells complete strangers how he killed whales with a penknife. They're all bats. <laughs> well, they're queer, but they're all very old, and so they're bound to be, but they're not mental, explained Mother, adding candidly. Anyway, not enough to be put away. <laughs> well, if we're going to be invaded by relations, there's only one thing to do, said Larry resignedly. What's that? inquired Mother, peering over her spectacles expectantly. We must move, of course. (laughs) Move? Move where? asked Mother, bewildered. Move to a smaller villa. Then you can write to all these zombies and tell them you haven't got any room. Don't be stupid, Larry. We can't keep moving. We moved here in order to cope with your friends. Well, now we'll just have to move to cope with the relations. But we can't keep rushing to and fro about the island. People will think we've gone mad. They'll think we're even madder if that old harpy turns up. Honestly, Mother, I couldn't stand it if she came. I should probably borrow one of Leslie's guns and blow a hole, <laughs> blow a hole in her corsets. Which reminds me of another thing that I disliked about the book. Keep going. <laughs> Larry, I do wish you wouldn't say things like that in front of Jerry. I'm just warning you. There was a pause while Mother polished her spectacles feverishly. But it seems so so eccentric to keep changing villas like that, dear, she said at last. There's nothing eccentric about it, said Larry, surprised. It's the perfectly logical thing to do. Of course it is, agreed Leslie. It's sort of a self-defence anyway. Do be sensible, mother, said Margot. After all, a change is as good as a feast. <laughs> so, bearing that novel proverb in mind, we moved. 
Like, that's genius. I d- look, like, I did like that, and I liked hearing you read it, but you didn't cover off the lead-up to that, where they talked about them opening the letters, and they were all just sort of haphazardly reading bits and pieces of the letters. This, this whole... six pages total, that entire chapter. Again, this is not... He wasn't picking on the one tiny section. He was just using it as an example. Exactly. Of- and, like, all, all that was, that six pages was effectively saying, oh, we have this art who's threatening to visit because she knows we have a lot of room here. Let's move to a smaller place so she she doesn't have the room to visit. The charm of this book is in the detail and is in the relations of the family and that captures it really well, that part you read in particular. But the preceding part wasn't necessary. It was constant through the book. There was always this setup of each of the stories and it was pretty pretty clear, you know, a lot of the details weren't necessary but were only to get the story moving and there was so much of that, that it was too much. I read a couple of the reviews on Goodreads for this, just to sort of have a look at what other people were thinking. And the the, the people that sort of roughly absolutely adored this and the people that enjoyed it but found it similarly to you, Keith, a little bit long, perhaps some of the descriptions were overdone, roughly 50-50. So you've sort of got this interesting divide. Nobody hated it. Nobody was throwing it out the window. There might have been people skim reading a few passages, passages I would imagine, but the Goodreads reviews that I had a quick look through echoed you two and your sentiments. Yeah, that, that's, that's good to know because, it, like I said, it's really well written and the stories are well crafted, but mm. they're overcrafted. And when you have chapters that are just stories wedged together that don't necessarily have to follow chronologically, and I think I read somewhere that they don't in reality actually follow chronologically in the book it sort of is is more like episodes that are maybe best enjoyed in slices as opposed to in one big pizza pie Mm. that was was a metaphor there i know he didn't use many metaphors but he used a hell of a lot of similes (laughs) (laughs) scarlet porridge yes indeed what's with the brother that's constantly wanting to blow things away oh yeah seriously the guns drove me nuts i'm like (laughs) He thinks there's somebody outside his window, so he sets up two guns to shoot at them. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's more telling of the time. I know, but the rest of the family don't seem to find this outrageous. No. (laughs) I still think that in the 30s, it would be highly unusual to set up two guns. And one of his tutors also shoots out the window at a couple of cats that are walking around. Killing a couple of cats. Kills them, you know, wandering around outside. And I just... Out of pity. Yeah, he explains that that's a mercy, though. He, he he thinks that the cats are starving to death in the streets. Yes, but nonetheless, he's in the town and he's shooting randomly out his window. What happens if he misses and hits a, I don't know, a poor peasant, you know, that they've already stolen all the peasants' food from? <laughs> well, to be fair, Bree, they're only peasants. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly right. I mean, I guess that is befitting the time, right? That it's this eccentric English family roaming around the countryside, taking figs from this peasant and <laughs> olives from this other one and drinking the other ones out of all of their wine. And mm. Jerry does indulge Jerry does. himself a little bit in the hospitality <laughs> of his neighbours. I don't <laughs> think the, the elder siblings did or the, or the mother. And I think I like the way he did that because he sort of didn't treat anyone a particular way. Everyone was as interesting as they were to him and he would interact with them based on his own interest. Mm. And I like that. I, I like that he, although he did identify them as peasants and perhaps it could be seen as a bit exploitive the way he would was always getting food from them. <laughs> I don't think that was his intention. Not only did he get food at one stage, <laughs> he's a cheeky little boy. At one stage he deliberately woke up someone who's sleeping by, what did he do? Did he call the dog or something? Like try to make the dog bark so the guy would wake yeah, up and offer right. And almost fall off his chair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like, how do I wake up this peasant without being rude, but still wake him up so he will offer me some grapes? Hmm. <laughs> and at one point he's passing through somebody else's plot of land and he filches, and I think I remember that word distinctly, that he filches two bunches of grapes to eat now and, you know, three or four for the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Just> sort of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he does share them later with someone else. So well, One thing we haven't talked about with, with the book, like you say there's a lot of minutiae in it. One thing that he was definitely very careful to explain in depth was all of the the wildlife Mm. like we've talked about the family but half at least of this book is dedicated to the wildlife that he discovers on the Mm. island 
right down to observing bugs and spiders in walls. And yes, he, he has a number of pets like tortoises and uh, was it a, a raven or a crow and a gull and all sorts of big animals. But he was also obsessed right down to the insect level of observing the habits and mating. And Yeah, but how do you feel about the big fight between the gecko and the pregnant <laughs> cicada or whatever it is? A stick insect. There was a... Praying mantis. He wants to capture the praying mantis to observe the cycle of life, and he seem he he observes a fair bit of cycle of life. So uh, good on you, Jerry, for learning from nature. But <laughs> he then allows his pet gecko to shred this thing to pieces, and this praying mantis to shred his pet gecko to pieces. And I just the detail in that scene was insane. Yeah, like, it was. It's all it's all imagined. Surely later, like there was obviously some sort of conflict between them, but the detail was insane. It was like it was happening under a microscope in front of mm. him, like he was giving mm. the blow-by-blow summary of it. Mm. Mm. I, I felt he either has like a, an amazing memory or he took notes. He did mention at one stage that he had a notepad as he was wandering around, so I wondered whether he might have noted down the battle in very, very poor <laughs> Yes, but that one to me, I agree with Keith, actually smacks of embellishments and really sort of overdoing it for the sake of the story. Yeah, which which is fine. And mm. it's, you know, you couldn't have a book like this without those sort of embellishments, so you have to give him that. But it was all the time. And, mm. yeah, so I would have loved to have with this book like a, I don't know if this is the right term, but like a glossary with pictures of all these animals and creatures. Mm. It would have really added to it, I thought, because, I mean, his descriptions are fantastic, but, you know, you can't beat a picture for for wildlife and and the like. Mm. Yeah, right. Keith, you had a discussion point. I did. I was thinking when reading this that this is this 10 to 15-year-old going out on these wonderful adventures and, you know, living this, this untethered life. If we had to write our own autobiographical tales from the same ages, what would we be hearing about from each of you? I mean, with, with Gerald, the focus was on nature. What would you guys be serving up in, in a, an autobiographical recounting of your 10 to 15 year age sort of area? Laurie, you started in on that before with descriptions of your idyllic boyhood in um, a farm in Outback Australia, which is in a city that is well known for its country music. Yeah, so I, I lived about 20 minutes out of town in Tamworth. Uh, Tamworth is in rural New South Wales, and it's known across the world, apparently, for its country music festival. Not a big country music fan myself, but that's what it's known for. So I lived 20 minutes outside of town on a loosened farm, and it was about 100 acres, and it was on some river flats. Um, so the loosen we grew down on the river flats and then our house was further up this hill and the river that fed through the valley that Tamworth is situated in, it was the Peel River. So I don't know, I guess a lot of my adventures were either down at the river or wandering up the back of, up the back of the property as we used to call it. So my stories would be about adventures with my dog. I had a, well, I had a couple of great German shepherds during my youth. One was a dog named Bodie and another one called Rico and both of them were just wonderful dogs. They'd come swimming with me down the river, like <laughs> Bodhi in particular. I think I'd probably tell a couple of stories about him. He used to enjoy watching me swing on this rope across the river. And to get onto the rope, there was this log that had been wedged into a tree uh, during uh, a big flood. Tamworth was sort of prone to flooding. And this, this log had been wedged in the fork of a tree way up sort of in the air. And you'd leap off the end of the log and then swing out over the river back and forth until your arms got tired and drop into the water, which is all very good fun until you have a very concerned German shepherd sitting on the edge of the water looking at you swinging and absolutely desperate to save you as soon as you let go. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd let go and you'd slam into the water and almost immediately have the dog (laughs) slam on top of you. (laughs) So if he wasn't pushing you down by climbing on top of you to rescue you. He would be biting at your face, trying to get a hold of you. <laughs> or scratching at you, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, big claws. Ah, the smell of wet dog. <laughs> I would go to school with, like, long raking welts down my arms and chest and stuff, and the teacher would look at me and sort of wonder, you know, what's going on in this kid's <laughs> home life? But it was just a very adoring, adoring dog. So, yeah, I had a few funny stories with that dog. Yeah. 
It's quite funny, actually. That reminds me of a book that I read in year seven called Eleanor Elizabeth. And I think we had to read it for school. But I remember devouring that story because it described similar things to you, you know, city kids actually moving to the country and the adventures they have and swimming in the river and, you know, exploring the countryside and finding a cave and all those sorts of things. The Enchanted Woods. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that for me as a city kid is just far removed, I guess, from anything that I lived. Hmm. Do you want me to go into mine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was going to say, well, what, what was your existence like? Well, mine's probably, I guess, more about the people. And I guess the, potentially that's the sort of person that I am as well. It's about my mum was a school teacher. And so my sister and I would sit at the school after after hours while she was doing meetings and those sorts of things. And, you know, walking up every couple of days when she's got an after school meeting to buy a Coke and a packet of Twisties. And, you know, to this day... Twisties is quite possibly my number one for naughty treats to have when I'm feeling a little bit hangry. (laughs) Chicken or cheese? (laughs) Cheese all the way. (laughs) There's none of this chicken stuff happening. Fair call. Paying my sister 50 cents a pop to warm up the toilet seat in the middle of the cold Melbourne winter. You did not. (gasps) Ask her. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Roald Dahl is nothing if not educational. (laughs) (laughs) I was always considered a really poor artist and so one day I asked my dad to draw a an emu for a school project and he drew one with four legs so you know you can kind of see that I was and we were all born in the city my stories would also look at the private girls school and the adventures and the doodling boys names (laughs) doodling boys names on our um, exercise books and hitching our school skirts up as soon as you walked out of the front gates, just so that the the boxer shorts, which was the fashion at the time, would show oh, just a little bit. How bad below. was that fashion? Boxer shorts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't didn't girls wear boxer Underneath shorts under their, their skirts, skirts at your school? They yeah, they certainly did. In <laughs> gross. I don't know what boxer shorts are. Oh, boxer shorts. Okay. Yeah, boxer <laughs> shorts. Boys boxer okay. shorts. It was I, I, yeah, I was. <laughs> Not there, but I am now. I was going to say, were you raised in a cult or something with only long jobs? I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> and I was also quite sporty and quite competitive, playing netball and the school aerobics obsession. Sounds like some fluoro was there. Yeah, seriously, but like leotards riding up in the nether regions while you're you're performing on stage. Overload of the misty spray of hairspray because you can't have any flyaways while you're up on stage. And the cheesy smiles and the nodding and the kicking. Gosh, it was just so, yeah, 10 to 15. There you go. How about you, Keith? City boy, country boy? Well, I'm city boy, so but I did have some kind of country-ish roots in that we had animals growing up. At one stage, we had a joey staying with us. Oh, wow. Uh, that was when I was quite young. There's some cool photos of it, but I don't recall it too well. Dad kept birds. Um, we had dogs. I had some pet mice growing up. But I think my focus, if I was being honest, would have been talking a lot about Lego. <laughs> From the sort of ten, the ten year old age, more so as I progress. I was going to say you would have been an awesome fifteen year old. You should bring your kids to see the Lego Christmas tree that's happening at Federation Square in Melbourne. I, I saw it last year in uh, Martin Place. Hmm. Actually, not Martin Place in Pitt Street Mall. Yeah, also reading lots of Roald Dahl, reading lots of Paul Jennings. Then sort of as I progressed, got a bit older. It was the transitionary stage going from primary school into high school and around about that same time the closest friend who lived across the road he moved into not interstate sorry he moved to the barrel area which is you know quite a, well, as good as yeah effectively when you're that age it is as good as and, and in that age in particular where we didn't have technology to keep you in touch so that was a big um some tears shed there and it was kind of cathartic in a way and it set you up for high school to establish all these new friendships which I did which was great Mm. so that also followed with an interest in basketball both playing and in watching go the supersonics (laughs) there would be some stories of our family trips around Australia including in one of them a very vicious tussle with my older sister in the Melbourne Radisson sorry if we didn't mean damage there but (laughs) Um, also I used to love drawing and with my two male cousins, we would just sit down for hours on Friday evenings drawing and yeah, so that would be covered off in there as well. When did you give away the pencils? Uh, I still tried to do a little bit now and then mainly in sort of things for the kids. Next time I need an emu, I'm coming to you. 
<laughs> it doesn't mean I'm necessarily very good at it, but I do enjoy doing it. I think that's a lot of poppycock because I've seen a picture of you, maybe not draw. Oh no, you did draw the plans and then constructed a Batman birthday cake. And it was like it was the Batmobile from the Tim Burton movies, and it was amazing. Wow. So, thank yeah, you. I was very impressed. High praise indeed. I would like to see some of your drawings though. Yeah. Maybe we'll put them up on Twitter. Maybe we won't. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> Moving on. So I'm really glad I asked that question because you guys had fantastic answers. So that was really insightful. I knew Laurie obviously was from the country and I expected the same. But, you know, the stories of the dog, they sound pretty intriguing and free as well. It was good to get a bit of background. Hmm. Uh, they sound intriguing, but unfortunately I've got a repertoire of about five stories. <laughs> <laughs> and I forget when... And how many times I've told them to people so they hear them quite a bit. <laughs> I should say, I, I mean, I was a voracious reader as well. So, and I was a high achiever and very dedicated to my schooling and those sorts of things. So it's, I think we were probably all voracious readers, right? Like, otherwise, why would we yeah, still be absolutely. doing this sort of podcast this far into our futures? <laughs> what I wasn't very good at, though, I think is is branching out and getting different books. Because as I got older, I think I just started to read whatever my mum was reading. And she read a lot of Patricia Cornwell and these sort of thriller books. And I really loved loved reading them. But that was sort of where my reading went in my early to mid to later teens. Mm. Well, it's lucky you're getting a little dabble in fantasy here and there at the moment. Yeah, I do enjoy it to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious because I, I think I was mostly completely disinterested in my mum's books, but she seems quite inter- interested in mine. I think I mentioned once before that I started reading the Red Wall series and she kept going along <laughs> after I'd finished. So, yeah. But yes, definitely a voracious reader. I do talk about these farm adventures, but to be honest, much more time is spent indoors with either a book or a uh, computer game in front of me. So Yeah, I didn't touch on those. There was a lot of computer game or would have been probably Nintendo playing there for me as well and lots of TV watching. Probably maybe that's around the Ninja Turtles time. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just used to hang out in the mall and watch the boys from over the far side hang out with my girls. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl... He wasn't just an author. Keith, you touched on it. He also ran a zoo later in Jersey, but not Jersey in New Jersey. It was part of the British Isles. And I found it very interesting that he was so obsessed with nature, like he he loved observing the natural world. And yet he seemed to pick it up and take it home with him a lot. Yeah, to live in his bathtub or his test tube or a box, or I hardly think that that's an appropriate place. Yeah, you never really hear what happens to mm. the animals. No. Like some of them die. They mm. reference the, he references the death of them. I can't remember very early on. There's one that sort of just passes quite quickly. Um, right, but only a few few times that's mm. mentioned. You sort of get the idea that eventually they. I don't know whether they die of natural causes or die from neglect <laughs> or what. But yeah, it's interesting that he was so obsessed with nature, but yeah, then took it home and I don't know, trapped it or domesticates them slightly. Mm. So I wondered whether or not when I read he had a zoo, I, I sort of have that love-hate relationship with zoos where, yes, I love to go and see animals because I love animals, but I hate zoos. No matter how good the zoos are, and I think the ones that we have in Australia are particularly good, having been to a couple of overseas ones and found them to be abysmal, he's looking at you, New York Central Park Zoo, <laughs> that his zoos had a policy. The charter for the zoos would be we only really want to have animals that are endangered and it is necessary to have a endangered breeding program and any other animal that isn't endangered shouldn't be in the zoo. Having a captive breathing program should only be a last resort and i and I, I found that to be the ideal kind of zoo to be honest with you if you're going to have animals i don't know captured and put as part of a zoo that it only really should be a last resort and that nature is best enjoyed in its natural setting i think it's a case and particularly with Darrell here this is what fostered his interest being exposed to it like this has fostered a lifetime of interest he obviously had a disposition towards it when he came to the island but this sort of environment it gave it a chance to really thrive and it continued through the rest of his life. And I think that's true of zoos. What they're aiming to do might not necessarily be the greatest thing for those animals in captivity, but it's exposure for people and it's an education for people about these animals that they do exist in the wild. And I think the revenue should and 
probably is by the more responsible zoos then used to aid wildlife in the wild. Right. And who knew that Greece had such fascinating wildlife? I mean, like I said earlier, all I remember is a couple of scrawny goats and a donkey. So amazing. I've only been to Athens and the immediate area surrounding that, so it's probably quite different to the island, but it didn't strike me as a place that would have been chock full of this animal life. Mm -hmm. Did you read that he was a reluctant author, that he, he had no real interest in writing at all, which I was surprised about? He said that the only reason that he wrote these books was to fund his adventures. Mm. So he'd go off on expeditions to observe animals and sometimes capture animals <laughs> got to make a living yeah yeah and he said that the difference between his brother who was a famous author and him was that he he didn't really like writing he he just wanted to sell the books which is a bit mercenary but i'm glad he mm. did it might have been set <laughs> part of the same sort of feeling but what i did read was that and i can't quote the source was that when he wrote this book he got right into it and punched it out in a short period of time because he was right into it and that comes across in the writing there there's definitely a passion that comes through but maybe some of the other books that came later were more laborious Mm. there's a couple of quotes that i want to read and one's quite short and it goes back to that sort of conservation concept i was talking about a moment ago Uh, and the other one's a bit long and it's uh, i'll explain that in a moment so i really like this quote from him many people think that conservation is just about saving fluffy animals What they don't realise is that we're trying to prevent the human race from committing suicide. We have declared war on the biological world, the world that supports us. At the moment, the human race is in the position of a man soaring off the tree branch he is sitting on. Look at it this way. Anyone who has got any pleasure at all from living should try and put something back. Life is like a superlative meal and the world is the maitre d'hôtel. What I am doing is the equivalent of leaving a reasonable tip. I'm glad to be giving something back because I've been so extraordinarily lucky and had such great pleasure from it. Hats off to him. I'm glad I've read his book now. Yeah, that, that's mm. nice. It didn't have that same sort of, obviously being an autobiographical tale, it didn't have that same sort of, I'm not going to say preachiness, but that moral underlying. Mm. Um, to, so right. it's good to hear that his heart was in the right place or he's in the right place. The other quote that I really liked, because I I was just looking at um, a list of various quotes that was on Wikipedia, and there's one that I was a bit surprised about, because he's just a boy, you really only hear about his adventures in this book, and I'm not sure if it changes in in the later books. But he got married at some point, but before he did, he wrote this letter. Now, it is quite long, so patience, and excuse me, I'm not the best reader. I was raised on a farm talking to wolves. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read it slowly to you. I have seen a thousand sunsets and sunrises on land where it floods forest and mountains with honey-coloured light, at sea where it rises and sets like a blood orange in a multicoloured nest of cloud, slipping in and out of the vast ocean. I have seen a thousand moons, harvest moons like gold coins, winter moons as white as ice chips, new moons like baby swan's feathers. I have seen seas as smooth as if painted, coloured like shot silk or blue as a kingfisher, or transparent as glass or black and crumpled with foam, moving ponderously and murderously. I have known silence, the cold, earthy silence at the bottom of a newly dug well, the implacable stony silence of a deep cave, the hot, drugged midday silence where everything is hypnotised and stilled into silence by the eye of the sun, the silence when great music ends. I have heard summer cicadas cry so that the sound seems stitched into your bones. I have seen hummingbirds flashing like opals round a tree of scarlet blooms, humming like a top. I have seen flying fish skittering like quicksilver across the blue waves, drawing silver lines on the surface with their tails. I have seen spoonbills fling home to roost like a scarlet banner across the sky. I have seen whales, black as tar, cushioned on a cornflower blue sea, creating of a sails of fountain with their breath. I have watched butterflies emerge and sit trembling while the sun irons their wings smooth. I have watched tigers like flames mating in the long grass. I have been dive-bombed by an angry raven, black and glossy as the devil's hoof. I have lain in water warm as milk, soft as silk, while around me played a host of dolphins. I have met a thousand animals and seen a thousand wonderful things. But all of this I did without you. 
This was my loss. All this I want to do with you. This will be my gain. All this I would gladly have forgone for the sake of one minute of your company, for your laugh, your voice, your eyes, hair, lips, body, and above all, for your sweet, ever-surprising mind, which is an enchanting quarry in which it is my privilege to delve. That was a letter to his fiancée, Lee, in 1978. Quite possibly one of the most beautiful love letters I've ever read. And the thing is, it's true. All of those things that he's described, he's gone out into the world and seen and loved and enjoyed. Nature, in the book that we read, is everything to this boy. He is obsessed with the natural world and its beauty until he meets this woman. It's just gorgeous. Loved it. And this is sort of in stark contrast to someone like, uh, I don't know, like Patrick reading out that little passage about Dahl being a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> It's sort of nice to hear that maybe this author is really just a, a, softy a nice heart. guy. Yeah, I think it's yeah. beautiful. Whichever. I loved it. Thanks, Larry. No probs. It made me want to get out there and experience nature a bit more. That, that end the book. I thought you were going to say, it makes me want to get out there and, you know, re-woo my wife. <laughs> that too, of course, you know. <laughs> Goes without saying. Every day, every day, right? It makes me want to go woo his wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's probably deceased now, right? <laughs> Maybe. One thing I, I'd like to add is thinking about that kind of stuff. Some of the best moments of my life have been in nature and, and probably that's why I did love this book. Anything else before we wrap up, guys? How about scoring with Bree? Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Scoring it is. Lead on. So I've done a bit of a... I've likened it to each of the siblings, the Durrell siblings. So was this book like Larry? Moments of brilliance amongst the arrogance, but a few too many words. Margot... Slightly self-indulgent, but well-intentioned. Or was this book, Leslie, went off like a shotgun. Jerry, curious, interesting, simply incredible. Laurie, I know where you see it. Well, of course, it's got to be Jerry mm. for me. How about you, Keith? Yeah, I'm going with Larry. If I had to summarise my thoughts on the book, it would be it's too much of a good thing. Ah, is Larry too much of a good thing? No, he's not. He's really a bit more on the arrogant yeah, side, I think. Yeah, that, that applies more to my thoughts than to, to Larry. But and from those selection, that selection is definitely Larry for me. And you, Bree? Yeah, look, it sits between Jerry and Larry because I really enjoyed it and I, I was absolutely transported back to Greece and wanted to experience it and see it and be there. And I... I think I need to thank Jarell for that because it was, you know, absolutely amazing. But um, it took me a long time to read it. And so that's that's it. Good book. Great choice. Well, the sequel, if you ended up buying the trilogy when we bought the book, Birds, Beasts and Relatives, is very short. Like, the book is very thin. Me- so, Keith, you should dive <laughs> back in. Or maybe he took some criticism and, or maybe it was his reluctance to write. But whichever the case, it sounds like it's probably a good thing for someone like me. I'm surprised you haven't read the subsequent books, given your love for this. I I did read Birds, Beasts and Relatives, probably immediately after My Family and Other Animals. So that would have been, I think, in, I don't know, maybe I was in year 10. So I don't really remember it, though. I will get to enjoy it again. But I'm not sure I read Garden of Gods, the third one. So that's actually something I look forward to. Excellent. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you read it at that sort of probably, what, 14 or 15, because... Yeah, I've heard from a probably not very reliable source that this book is aged at age nine upwards, and I think it would be quite a difficult read for a nine-year-old, although it's like recounting the tales of a similarly aged youth. It, uh, in terms of the language, it's quite complicated. So I don't know what you guys thought in terms of the target audience, but probably that 14 or 15 upwards is where I think it would be most effective. Well, certainly when I'm looking up words and I'm 35, but and I'm sure that I've never seen these words written down before, it's... I mean, you can have a good stab at some of their meaning, but yes. Maybe he's seeking revenge. If I have to sit down and learn all these ridiculous <laughs> words, I'm sure as hell going to use them in the book so some other kid has to look them up. <laughs> Either that or it was edited by his brother who is prone to using, you know, some ridiculousness. That's very likely what happened. Yeah, that language, his brother's language in the book was taking it to another level on, at times as well, which I did mm. like. 
on the Wikipedia page when I was reading about him, in the book you seem to get the impression that there's a lot of conflict between the mm. siblings, especially with Larry, who's sort of this overbearing, pompous kind of prick. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, apparently they got along very well. Like they were very close brothers. So I, I do imagine that he probably assisted quite a bit with the writing of this book or the editing. Yeah, there's definitely that underlying love that you feel, even though they're ribbing on each other constantly, which is probably an English and Australian thing to do. It's, mm. it's, it has a basis in love. It's all um, tongue-in-cheek and it's, yeah, it's friendly. It's interesting what I read is that the chronology of the stories wasn't accurate, but also one of the brothers didn't actually live with the rest of the family. Yeah, oh, he wasn't really? Corfu, but he lived there with his wife who wasn't mentioned at all in the story. So, <laughs> Seriously? Well, yeah. the only one that would have been old enough would have been... Larry, right? Mm, mm, yeah, I think it was Larry. Wow. Well, you don't let the truth get in the way of a good order. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Next episode, things get citrusly disturbing in a popular and very appealing title. Orange, you're glad you'll be joining us for Lemony Snicket's a, ser- a series of unfortunate events. Theodore would be proud of these. <laughs> Now, dear listeners, I'm not sure Keith had the opportunity this episode to bestow upon you the wisdom of the masters of the universe, so he's found a quote for you. Please enjoy and keep reading. I hope you enjoyed today's adventure. You know, television is not the only way to be entertained by an exciting story. There is another way. It's called reading. And one of the wonderful things about books is that they allow you to choose whatever kind of adventure you like. A trip with an astronaut, an adventure with the great detective Sherlock Holmes, a comedy, anything. You can find it in a book at your school or neighborhood library. Why, I'll bet there are even some good books right in your own home just waiting to be read. This episode of Seeking Tumnus will contain spoilers, but you can rest easy knowing that this is a kind of book that cannot so easily be spoiled by prot revelations. Did I say prot? I'm pretty sure <laughs> you said prot. prot. I wasn't sure who was going to be <laughs> Cannot be spoiled by prot revelations. Shut up, you, Laurie. We're going to have to have a bloopers where all we do is put that in.